0: Christ is Lord. Amen. That's what we're going to see today. It's a privilege always to get to preach here, Scott, when Scott gives me this honor. Um, But I I wanted to highlight one thing before we dive into the Word. In your uh, worship guide, there's this little handout, Fasting and Feasting. If you want to just look at that, um, take that home with you, read it. And uh, it's just a helpful little guide that uh, we've, we've made here for you uh, as, as we enter this season. And I just wanna reiterate what Lee has said. Um, you know, we, we fast with, with purpose and we fast together. Uh, that, that's what this is all about. It was pretty cool, might have been yesterday, I was driving down the road, um, leaving my neighborhood, and I saw a, a little church with, you know, they have that digital sign that kinda rotates stuff through. And as I was driving, I saw 21 days of prayer and fasting. I was like, wow, that, that's pretty cool. I don't know a single person at that church, don't know the pastor, never been in there. But in a, in a significant way, we are united together uh, for the good of this city and for the glory of Jesus. And I, that, that's just really cool and really special that we get to partner together with these churches to seek the Lord. Um, but we do it intentionally. We do it together. Uh, Scott wants us. As a congregation to fast on Saturdays uh, throughout this month, the 13th through the 14th, the 20th through the 21st, and the 27th through the 28th, so starting next Saturday. And if fasting has not been a, a regular part of your life or you maybe have never done it, uh, it it's, this is a really easy step that you can take. So on Saturday you eat breakfast, you eat lunch, and then you skip dinner and you skip breakfast on Sunday morning. And then you break your fast on uh, lunch on Sunday. So that's 24 hours in between your meals. And so that's a 24 hour fast. It's, it's a great entry point into this spiritual discipline of fasting. And that's what I'm gonna be doing. That's what Scott's gonna be doing. That's, that's what we urge you to do as the body of Christ, as we unite together. But we have a goal, we have a purpose in pursuing this together. And Scott's given us that, he's cast that vision that we are to pour ourselves out for God's kingdom. For God's glory. That's our aim. And so when we fast, we don't just do it purposeless. We don't do it aimlessly. We don't just go hungry to be hungry. That's not what fasting is about. You know, we might have a lot of reasons and a lot of goals to pursue throughout this fast, but the primary purpose is to feast on God's Word. And so that's what we are going to look at today, feasting on the word, We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to read majority of these two chapters. Um, but we're going to start in chapter 22. We're just going to kind of enter into this story of King Josiah and his discovery of the law. And then we're going to t- kind of take a break in between chapter 22 and 23. And we're going to do a little church history and uh, nerd out a little bit and try to answer the question, what uh, can I trust the Bible? And we'll come back in to the text in chapter 23 and we'll draw out uh, Josiah's applications of the word. He discovers the law and then he obeys it. And we're going to see how does, he, how does he apply the word to his life and what might we learn from that. And then we'll, we'll end with um, the question, where's Jesus in this? How do we see Jesus in this Old Testament passage? So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me today? I'm just going to read the first two verses. 2 Kings. Chapter 22, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or the left. Pray with me. God, as we approach your word today, we just cry out to you. Would you reveal the Word of God to us ultimately in Christ. Will we draw near to Him? Will we feast on Him? And will we grow as we seek nourishment in Your Word? Move in the hearts of these people. God, may we just feast on Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all can be seated. Now this is, this is a pretty amazing story when you think about it. This eight-year-old becomes king. I mean, imagine if we had an eight-year-old president of the US, like that's kind of crazy to think about. You know, it's just a completely different world. Um, we have a democracy. We vote on who rules us. Uh, they didn't do that. Uh, the throne was passed down from generation to generation. So if a king dies, you know, before his son is, is old enough, son still becomes king. Uh, he doesn't just make a lot of rules, you know, like, everybody gets to eat ice cream for breakfast, you know. Um, like he's not doing stuff like that. He has people around him. You know, he obviously needed help he was that young at eight. And so he, he had some good people around him and a, a godly mother who's named here. Um, Josiah's father and grandfather were bad men. They were really evil and terrible kings. But these nameless figures who surrounded him had great influence on his life. And according to the book of Chronicles, Josiah began seeking the Lord at age 16. Eight years into his reign, as king and it was four years later at 20 years old that he started to make religious reforms in Judah trying to clean up the mess his grandfather and father had made and that's where we'll look at today is as, as you know as, as he's 20 years old you know there were only seven other kings who shared this kudos that they did what was right in the Lord's sight the rest you know it said they were they were evil they were wicked and only two kings had shared a comparison to King David the fact it mentions this is a testimony to the grace of God, showing that you are not destined to follow in the footsteps of unfaithful parents. God's grace is sufficient for you. If you have ungodly parents, then you're not destined to follow in their path. And that's good news. And that's the news of Josiah. That's his story. Verse 3, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the court secretary, Shaphan, son of Azalea, son of Meshulam, to the Lord's temple, saying, go up to the high priest Hilkiah, so that he may total up the silver brought into the Lord's temple, the silver the doorkeepers have collected from the people. It is to be given to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. They, in turn, are to give it to the workmen in the Lord's temple to repair the damage. They are to give it to the carpenters, builders, and masons to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the temple. But no accounting is to be required from them for the silver given to them since they work with integrity. So our author focuses in on the 18th year of Josiah's reign. When he was 26 years old, and on this key event of his life, like this will be the legacy. This is what we remember Josiah from. This is when we read in Second Kings and the Second Chronicles the story of Josiah. This is what both of those focus on. Josiah calls for an audit of the temple, and he gives some orders to a scribe, Shaphan. He insisted this money be taken away from the management of the priests and the Levites, likely due to their neglect, and and he's to give it to these workmen who are general contractors overseeing the temple renovations. And they would then take this temple money and they would pay subcontractors. Okay, and Josiah didn't even need an accounting from them. He trusted them more than the priests in the temple. This is just further criticism on those who were involved in the temple, showing just their mismanagement of money. You know, how this this time period that he was in was just ruled by by wickedness. And you know, this this happens still today where pastors mismanage the offerings of God's people and And use it on themselves. But praise God we have faithful stewards here at Stephen Street. Amen. We can give our money and not be afraid of where it's going to be used. We know it's going to be used for God's kingdom. Verse 8. The high priest Hilkiah told the court secretary Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Then the court secretary Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your servants have emptied out the silver that was found in the temple and have given it to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. And the court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, the priest Hilkiah has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. So the high priest Hilkiah discovers the book of the law. Okay, and what's incredible is that this is the main man in charge of the temple, the place where worship is done. And he had no idea where the scripture was. You would think that the high priest would be looking all over for the scripture because that's what literally tells him how to do his job. But it's not surprising because Manasseh, did everything in his power to destroy biblical orthodoxy, and Hilkiah was likely influenced by him. And the scripture was missing for 75 years. Like, think about that. It's it's just hard for me to even fathom that. That is the entire existence of Stephen Street. That would be like Stephen Street starting, and there never being a Bible in this building, and yet we're still here 75 years later. Like, that is absolutely mind-blowing. So Shaphan, the king's scribe, reads this book, the book of the law. He goes to the king and then he gives him an update on the temple audit and then just like quietly mentions, oh, hey, we found this uh, old book. Um, you know, this, this book was either the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, Pente- the, uh, the Pentateuch, or the, um, at least it was Deuteronomy, scholars think. So, and he just reads it. He reads it before the king. And this whole scene is just ironic because Deuteronomy 17 literally says, it commands that the king is to make his own copy of the law. He's to handwrite the entire law out, and he's to read it every single day. That's the king, that's God's command to the king. You know, so this verse was probably read out loud to Josiah, in addition to all the other laws that are found in there, and it elicit this just genuine response of sorrow and conviction and fear in his heart. He was overwhelmed, just completely overwhelmed, and here's how he responded. Verse 11, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded the priest, Hokiah, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Achbor, son of Micaiah, the court secretary, Shaphan, and the king's servant, Isaiah, go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah about the words in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. And this response reveals just the spiritual darkness of this period in Judah's history. The impact on Josiah is just instantaneous. He tears his clothes as this expression of grief. He's so baffled, like so confused, he doesn't even know what to do. You know, not often are kings humbled. When we think about kings throughout history, humility is not typically a characteristic of them. But Josiah was humbled. So he orders these men. He says, go and find out more. He realizes Judah's in deep trouble, but he doesn't even know where to begin. I mean, the law's been lost. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know where to start. He needs some prophetic direction and someone to explain the further meaning of the word. Verse 14. So the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiya went to the prophetess Hulda, wife of Shalem, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. They spoke with her. She said to them, "This is what the Lord God of Israel says: Say to the man who sent you to me." This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to anger me with all the work of their hands. My wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, I will indeed gather you to your ancestors and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I'm bringing on this place. Then they reported to the king. So hold his home, this prophetess. It's like the entrance of an emergency room. The results of the diagnosis was not good. There was no hope. Death was imminent. Didn't have much time. Disaster upon Judah was promised. It was guaranteed, and nothing, nothing was going to change God's Word. Too long had the people abandoned God to serve idols. Too long had they stirred up the anger, the fury, and the wrath of Yahweh. Yet, God decided to show mercy to Josiah, Because he is the God who responds to cries for mercy from sinful people. Judgment is certain, but it's delayed. Because of Josiah's tender heart, his humility, and his repentance, he would be spared from the coming disaster. And as described at the end of these chapters, Josiah dies four years before the Babylonian captivity where Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. And this shows God's faithfulness to his promises, both in his mercy and in his judgment. God is sovereign. He is ruler over all and his will is certain, and God's will is determined by God's word. And if that's true, that God's will is determined by his word, then we must know his word. Just like Josiah's generation, the scriptures have a chance to be lost in every generation. And I'm not just talking about people not reading it, although that is a problem. Biblical literacy is a problem. You need to read your Bible. You need to study your Bible. You need to memorize your Bible and meditate on your Bible. You need to know the word. But when the Scripture is lost in a generation, it typically begins with the leaders denying the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. Did you know the churches in America almost lost the Scripture in the last century? This almost happened in our time, in our country. And many of you probably remember it. I had a a man walk up to me after the service and tell me, Yeah, I remember that so vividly I almost left the Southern Baptist Convention and the church because of it. You know, During the late 20th century, the conservative resurgence happened. This was a significant shift within the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is what Stephen Street is a part of. This movement, which began in the 70s and continued into the early 90s, was characterized by a return to more conservative, traditional interpretations of the Bible and a rejection of more liberal theological positions that had gained significant influence within the denomination. The seminary presidents and many of the influential churches in America in the SBC were teaching liberal doctrine saying that we cannot trust the word but some key figures who had backbones who stood up for the truth like Paige Patterson and Adrian Rogers they spoke up and they defended the inerrancy of the word and that was the primary focus the inerrancy of the bible it was the central issue in the battle of the bible Conservatives within the SBC argued that the Bible is without error in all its teachings, a position that clashed with the more liberal interpretations that allowed for historical and scientific errors in the text. You know, many were claiming that we can't trust our Bibles, so those who stood on the truth fought back. But this was a microcosm in our SBC bubble of of something similar that was even happening on a grander scale in all of evangelicalism. In 1978, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was written. And it was formulated during this international summit of evangelical leaders, all flying on planes to meet at Chicago, Illinois. And as a response to this growing debate within the evangelical community, it was about the nature and interpretation of the Bible. The statement aimed to define the evangelical stance on the Bible's authority, particularly affirming the belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that the Bible in its original manuscripts, is without error in all it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or historical details or or anything. And some other key figures like R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, Francis Schaeffer, Norman Gosler, so many other godly men, they stood up and they fought for this. And the central tenet of the Chicago Statement was the inerrancy of the Bible. And this aligned closely with those foundational beliefs in the conservative resurgence, which sought to reaffirm and reestablish a strict interpretation of biblical inerrancy. You know, in this statement, uh, it's just a clear articulation of what inerrancy means. And I just urge you to go read it. You can just Google Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It's not very long and it's, it's worth your read. But what they were aiming to do was to provide a succinct answer to the question, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? And a rejection of this would mean that the Bible would be lost in that generation. But praise God that there were men of God with a backbone who stood for the truth. I mean, have you ever asked this question? It's a good question. And I think it's something all of us need to wrestle with. Is the Bible trustworthy? Can we trust the words in our English Bible? Or is it just a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation where information gets muddied over time? You know, the Bible's not just a book like any other book. It argues that God is speaking through it. And it argues that we, as his creatures, are held accountable to its message. The trustworthiness of Scripture points to its authority. If we trust the Bible, then the Bible has ultimate authority over our lives. So can we trust the Bible? Let's nerd out for a few minutes, okay? I like to get nerdy sometimes, so I apologize for those who don't. Now let's briefly talk about ancient documents. To start off, you need to know that none of the original manuscripts of the Old New Testament are still in existence. They've all perished Um, what the things that were written on back in the day, they don't survive throughout time. And, you know, all that remains are just imperfect copies that were transcribed by men. But this is the exact situation of all other ancient works of literature, too. No one has the originals. For example, even though we don't have the original writings of Plato or Socrates or Shakespeare, this doesn't make us doubt their existence or their trustworthiness you know, or the, or the accuracy of their writings. While this may come as a surprise, this fact should not turn us into skeptics regarding the trustworthiness of the Bible. Two illustrations, real quick. First, how do you know how long a yard is? So, like you stick your arm out and you're like, maybe i take a step. Yeah, that's about a yard, right? That's not how we determine it. There's this standard yard at the Smithsonian Institute. So what would happen though? It's like, you know, national treasure level stuff. Someone comes in, they steal the yard. I don't know why they would steal the yard, but let's say they do, and then they lose it. Or the Smithsonian Institute gets burnt down. Could we never measure anything again? Is football, done with. Like, we don't have a yard anymore. What do we do? Of course not. Why? Because we have reliable copies that are extremely accurate. Even though we wouldn't possess the original yard, we would essentially know how long a yard was. Second, what time is it? You know, if we pull out our smartwatches, our smartphones, or whatever, Maybe you got an old-school watch. Mine says 1114. You know, it's hooked into the Wi-Fi, so it must be right. That one up there, some people are in error. It's 1160. It's a little discrepancy there. Maybe some of your clocks might see discrepancies. Um, Does that throw us into a panic that we don't know what time it really is? No. The official time for the U.S. is kept by the Time Service Department at the U.S. Naval Observatory. If it were somehow destroyed, will we never know what time it is again? No, because we have lots of reliable copies. We know essentially what time it is with very detailed accuracy. Copies of the Old and New Testament work in the same exact way. The more copies we have to examine and the closer the copies are to the original source, the better. And no other ancient document comes close to the number and quality of ancient manuscripts that we have of the Bible. Now, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a collection of 39 books written over the course of thousands of years that's a lot of time you would think to make errors right so the, so they had to be very careful in preserving the text of scripture first the scribes who copied and preserved the text were extremely meticulous they developed this numerical system to ensure accurate copies they they would take the original copy that they had and this blank piece of paper and they would write it out okay and they counted the number of lines on this one and they counted the number of words on each line and they counted the number of letters And each strokes of pen, every jot and tittle, as Jesus would say, on every single page. And then they would compare it to the copy they made. And if it wasn't 100%, they would throw away that copy. That's how serious they took transcription. And perhaps the strongest evidence for the reliability of the Old Testament was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 in Qumran. This just shows that what I just said was true. A shepherd boy was tending some goats, and he maybe threw a rock in this cave, or he walked in there or something, and he stumbled upon some pottery. And uh, in this pottery, it was a bunch of it, had a bunch of ancient texts. There were 800 scrolls containing fragments from every single book of the Old Testament, except Esther. And these documents dated from 200 B.C., that's before Christ, to A.D. 50. They were really old. The most significant one was the entire book of Isaiah, which dated to 75 B.C. That's before Christ. Okay, before this discovery, our oldest manuscript of Isaiah was from like 1,000 A.D., after Christ. So when they compared these documents, which have over a thousand years between them, they were 95% identical, word for word, copy of each other. And the 5% variations that they found were just slips of the pen, like a letter messed up or um, a misspelled word. Like nothing significant at all. Man, God was faithful to preserve his word. Amen. And as strong as the case is for the trustworthiness of the Old Testament, it's even stronger for the New Testament, which is where it ultimately matters. The New Testament was written in Greek, okay, from A.D. 49 to about A.D. 95. And it consists of 27 books, multiple authors. There's an incredible amount of manuscript evidence supporting it. Most ancient documents only have like a copy. Uh, like, I mean, a handful of copies left. For example, some writers around the same time as the New Testament, um, this Greek historian, Herodotus. Herodotus had, you know, there's 109 copies of his works. 31 from a guy named Tacitus, 150 from Livy. Not much. Next to the Bible, the most copies we have of an ancient text is Homer's Iliad, which is about 2,300 copies. But the Greek New Testament alone has more than 5,700 manuscripts. And we're discovering more as time goes on. And that doesn't include the 10,000 Latin manuscripts and almost 1 million New Testament quotations from the early church fathers. We don't even need the manuscripts. We could take, just take the writings that we have of the early church fathers, take their quotations of scripture, and we would have the whole entire New Testament. They quoted it all. We contain an embarrassing amount of riches in this regard. No other ancient document even comes close. Not only do we have an abundance of manuscripts, we have really, really old ones. Not most ancient works of literature can't say that. Our earliest fragment comes from a portion of John, which dates to AD 117. No scholars assume John wrote it in AD 95. That is like 20 years between those. That is amazing. There's a lot I could say here, and we could get really nerdy, and we've probably got too nerdy for some of you. But one final point about how we got our Bible. How do we know that the right books were included in the New Testament? You know, the books of the Bible had an authority that was recognized, not given. You know, the the Roman Catholic Church believes that the authority of the Bible was given to it by the church. But that's not the case. We, the, we receive the authority of Scripture. People who combine these separate writings in the one book that we now call the Bible did not invest, invest authority into this book. Okay, they affirmed what was already authoritative within the community, and they just simply organized it so that we can carry it around. Like What a blessing this is. We don't have these scrolls and individual writings that we just have to keep to ourselves. Now, The selection process known as canonization generally followed four criteria— And all four of these things had to be present in order for them to recognize this is the Word of God. Apostolicity, meaning it was written by an apostle or under the authority of an apostle. They had to prove that. There was writings that came later that they would discover that they thought, maybe we should include this. But then as they began to examine, it's like, okay, this was written after the time of the apostles. This is not the Word of God. Orthodoxy, meaning that it did not contradict previously revealed truths of the Word. Antiquity, meaning it was from the time of the Apostles and no later. Universality, meaning it was widely accepted as authoritative. All of those things had to be present. And in light of all of this, with the surface just barely scratched, we possess sufficient reason to trust our English Bibles. The scholars we have are experts in translation. You know, you could study Greek, you could study Hebrew, but your personal translation of the Bible is not going to be better than what these scholars have created. Man, they are using a plethora of ancient manuscripts. They're, in essence, translating the exact words of the apostles into English for us. And that is a major blessing. Church, you can trust your English Bible because God has preserved his word for us. That's good news. Now, let's get back to Josiah, chapter 23. There's this sharp contrast between Josiah and the two kings preceding him. The contrast between these kings is that Josiah is shaped by the word of God, and they were not. He trusts the Bible. And unfortunately, this approach seems so impressive because it seems so rare to see people broken over their sin and desiring total obedience to God's word, submitting to its authority. Josiah stands on the firm conviction that the word of God is sufficient and authoritative for all of his life. And conviction of this kind always leads to action. If you believe the Bible is true, then you will do what it says. Chapter 23 is about how Josiah does that. He rolls up his sleeve and he gets the work obeying the word of God. We see three ways. First, he renews a covenant. Second, he cleans house. And third, he revives biblical worship. Covenant renewed. Chapter 23, verse 1. So the king sent messengers and they gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. Then the king went to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people from the youngest to the oldest. He read it in their hearing, all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Next, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. All the people agreed to the covenant. So Josiah's response is surprising to me. Consider what we just learned. God promised, promised, it was, it was set in stone that he was going to pour out his wrath on Judah and nothing was going to stop him. Josiah could have let that demotivate him. He could have let that lead him to disobedience. He could have let that lead him to apathy and to sinful indulgences of the flesh. I mean, he was king. He could have got whatever he wanted. But no, instead he went to the house of the Lord. He read the word of God to the people. And he made a covenant with God, a promise to follow him and to keep his commandments. He knew that even if this revival would be temporary, he would do whatever he could to bring glory to God through obedience to his word. He was not managing his own kingdom. He was managing God's kingdom, and he took that task seriously. And the first step in Josiah's reformation was standing firm on the word and recovering biblical faithfulness revival always begins with the word of God being obeyed by God's people. And the second step that he took was the covenant together. And Josiah knew that reform would not come through one man, not through a king, not through a pastor or a priest, but through the entire community standing on the word together, encouraging each other and holding each other accountable. It says they all agree to the covenant. That's kind of what we're doing in this 21 days of prayer and fasting. We are uniting together as the body of Christ, not just Stephen Street, but the body of Christ. And we are seeking the Lord together. Church, we need each other. And if you've been coming to Stephen Street for a while, but you've never joined, you need to. You need to. It's important for you to make a covenant, to make a promise to other believers that you're going to follow Jesus with them. You're going to pursue the Lord together. Next, we see in this text how he cleaned house, purifying the land, and the people from evil. House clean. Verse, verses 4 through 24. I'm not going to read this. I have them listed on the screen, bullet points. Um, but revival, revival, we all seek it. But it begins here. It begins with the house of the Lord being purified from sin. Josiah wanted to see sin eradicated from God's people. And here's how he did it, in 13 ways. He removed pagan paraphernalia from the temple and burnt it. In verse 4. He killed the pagan priests in verse 5. He took the Asherah pole, pagan idol, and pulverized it to dust and threw it on the pagan graves um, in verse 6. He tore down these male prostitutes' temple apartments. There was apartments built by the temple for male prostitutes. He tore it down in verse 7. And he defiled Judah's high places and got rid of their priests in verses 8 through 9. He defiled Tophet, the place of child sacrifice to the false god Molech in verse 10. He removed and destroyed sun worship paraphernalia in verse 11. He tore down and smashed royal idolatrous altars in verse 12. He eliminated all of Solomon's dumb mistakes. Solomon did some evil things. And probably the people thought they viewed him as sacred cows. They were, they were tradition at this point. And God's king, the wise king, he tore it down. Doesn't matter. He destroyed the props for fertility worship in verse 14. He pulled down and defiled Jeroboam's Bethel worship center in verses 15 and 16. He went on a purge throughout the northern cities in Samaria in verses 19 through 20, and he eradicated the occult practitioners, these mediums, these spiritists, these people who were trying to speak to the dead and other occult practices. In verse 24, I mean, dude, Josiah got a lot done during his reign. It's like it took years. It was like a very difficult but the primary thing that we can glean from this is that God's people were not aligning their lives with his word. And look how far they had fallen. Look at this. That was God's people doing that. Man, God's people, look at the mess they had gotten themselves into. God's word calls us to be holy as he is holy. And that happens when God's people repent of their sins. They turn from their sinful ways and they obey the scripture. Revival begins in the house of the Lord. Church, we are to be holy before him. His word demands it. Finally, we see how Josiah brought reform to worship, primarily through this Passover. You could say this is the pinnacle of Josiah's achievements. Worship revived. Verse 21. The king commanded all the people, observe the Passover of the Lord your God is written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover had ever been observed from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. And having likely read Deuteronomy 16, verse 1 through 8, which talks about what the Passover is and how God's people are to do it, Josiah commands them, let's do what God's word says. He says we must observe the Passover in this way, so let's do it. And then they have the greatest Passover ever experienced since the time of the judges. And Josiah knew that God was worthy of proper worship. And proper worship is how we as God's people are reformed. Reformation entails not only putting away what is false, but also promoting what is true. What has always happened in reformation periods throughout history is an appreciation and re-emphasis on biblical worship. God decides how he wants us to worship him. We don't get to decide that. So when we come before the Lord, we come under the submission of His Word. What that looks like today is a church that regulates their worship according to the Word, not according to the world. We are not trying to be innovative and cool. We are trying to be faithful. We preach God's Word, looking at it, exposing what God has said in His Word. We sing God's Word singing truth into our hearts and up into the ears of God. We pray God's word, confessing our sin and giving him thanks. We display God's word through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. And we obey God's word by leaving this place and going and making disciples. That is true worship and that's what we are called to as Stephen Street Baptist Church. You know, you would think Maybe Josiah discovering the law was the climax of this passage. Or maybe him ridding Judah of all that filth and purifying God's people. Maybe that was the climax of this passage. Or maybe when he finally reinstitutes and celebrates the Lord's Passover in a magnificent way. Maybe that was the pinnacle of this, the climax of this passage. But that's not the case. We come to the climax and conclusion in verses 25 through 27. The writer's been building up Josiah and his ministry up to this point. Look at verse 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, according to all the law of Moses. And no one like him arose after him. Man, I don't know about you, but Josiah seems like the guy. Like he's the man. As some of y'all would say, he's the goat of kings, the greatest of all time. And he is, he's the guy. But now we get a slap in the face. Look at verses 26 through 27. In spite of all that, in spite of all that, the Lord did not turn from the fury of his intense burning anger, which burned against Judah because of all the affronts with which Manasseh had angered him. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my presence, just as I have removed Israel. I will reject the city Jerusalem that I have chosen and the temple about which I said my name will be there. If Josiah could not ultimately save his people, then who could? What hope is there for God's people? Think about this. Look at all Josiah did. Look at the man of God he was. Yet it wasn't enough. And there are some of you in this room who think you can save yourself. Sin must be punished. Your sin must be punished. God would not be just if he did not punish sin. And none of us can save ourselves from the coming wrath that God has promised. That's, that's a predicament that we're in. Man, no governmental power can protect you. No worldly philosophy. No amount of good works can cover your sin. You could read the Bible every single day of your life trying to find answers to your questions. You could come to church every single Sunday. You could get baptized a hundred times. You could do a whole slew of good things, but none of your works will save you. You cannot save yourself, but there is one who can save you. He is the true king of Israel, promised king, the king long foretold by the prophets, the rightful heir to the throne, and his name is Jesus. He is the perfect king, and he has done what no king before him could do. What makes the Bible so special is not that it's inerrant. It's not that it's trustworthy. It's not that it's the primary authority of our lives. The Bible is special because in it we see the word of God, Jesus Christ, when we look into the Word, when we feast upon the pages of Scripture, we are feasting on Christ. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you do not see Christ, you have not encountered the Word of God. This book is about Him. It's all about the true King. The King who came to a broken and sinful people, who paid their debt with His life, and then conquered the greatest enemy ever known to man, death. Nothing can stop this king. And you can escape the coming wrath and judgment of God by submitting to him in faith. He is your only hope. The scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There will come a day... When every single knee in this room, every single knee in the entire universe will bow before Jesus and confess Him as Lord. Every single person. But there will come a day for many, and it will be too late. It will be too late for some of you. May that day not be today. Come to the Lord. Bow your knee to Christ the King. Pray with me.